Okay, it's just right up at time, it looks like. Maybe 45 seconds passed. <laughs> okay, good. Maybe need to lower this a little so it won't boom you, boom you out. Put it back up. Okay, you'll adjust it. Okay. Okay, fine. Well, good morning, everyone. Hope your week is starting out the way you'd like for it to be. And, of course, I know you'd like for it to be for by being here. And we're glad you're here this morning. And we'll continue our study of Isaiah. And as you'll see from the handout, I hope everyone is able to get a hold of a handout back there, that we'll be looking mainly at chapters 2 and 4 of Isaiah as we continue to look at these introductory matters in the book of Isaiah, and we're calling this the consequences of a disintegrating society, because we'll see in these, uh, in these chapters here, in the verses in chapters 2 and th- 3, uh, a description of the uh, situation of Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, and it presents a, a picture of the nation of Judah is as disintegrating, coming apart, falling, fa- falling apart uh, in, in their society. And so we'll be looking at that mainly. See the different terms and phrases, terminology that Isaiah uses to describe the situation of his, uh, of his country in his time. And suggesting perhaps we might see in this something of the disintegrating of our own society today in our modern age. So that will, in essence, will be what we'll be looking at at this morning. So let's go ahead and begin our class with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can take a few moments uh, this, uh, this morning to come and give our attention to a study of your word. We pray that you'll be with us as we look at these words, and we're thankful that you have preserve these words uh, through the years and through the centuries that uh, we can read them today and see what you have taught your people in times past and the eternal message that uh, these words contain for us that will apply to our lives today. You help open our eyes to uh, the truths that contain your word and may we see uh, the truths that would, would apply to us in our own day today that we might uh, follow the uh, instructions that are given to us in your word that we might live in a way that uh, we can bring honor and glory to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, the brief statement uh, at the very beginning here indicates that well, what these, uh, this section of Isaiah is, is it's a study in disintegration. And uh, we'll, we'll see how Isaiah describes the, the, the disintegration of his own country in his own day. And um, uh, the next quotation is from, um, <clears throat> from uh, James Burton Kaufman. We introduced him before. He was the minister of the Manhattan Church of Christ in New York City for a number of years. Retired and then wrote a complete set of commentaries on the whole Bible. 
And his commentary on Isaiah said this about the situation that Isaiah was facing in his day when he said that it is a sad picture of a society which has forsaken its moral values. Turned from God to a philosophy of humanism and adopted the customs, idols, and value judgments of paganism, inevitably culminating in the bitter uh, predictive prophecy that is mentioned in chapters 3 and verse 8, which says, Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling. Just a few days ago, I was in our uh, public library downtown in Old Town, uh, looking at the uh, New Interpreter's Bible, a set of commentaries on the Bible, to see what it had to say about this section of Isaiah. It's called the New Interpreter's Bible because there was an old set of commentaries uh, that was uh, known as the simply the Interpreter's Bible. And this is a new revised, updated version of that set of commentaries, written by a number of different commentators um, uh, from... Uh, various parts of the country, even uh, uh, various parts of the world, who are recognized as being uh, experts in uh, particular parts of, of the Bible. And they, they have written uh, commentaries on uh, all the books of the New Testament in, in the, their particular special, special area of uh, study. And so this is what I found that the, the interpreter's Bible, the new interpreter's Bible, had to say about this section that we're looking at right here. It says, uh, power is the concern that drives this, uh, this discourse. Political and economic power considered in terms of a society's leadership. There are few societies, and when he says few societies, that would include our own society today, there are a few societies that have not experienced the chaos described here. And we'll look and see how Isaiah describes the chaos of his own, own country and his own time. <clears throat> few countries uh, that have not experienced the chaos described here. The anarchy resulting from the loss of all traditional leadership. In fact, many societies seem to live on the edge of such disorder. Anarchy, including disrespect for the elderly, and the honorable becomes the alternative to order and peace. There's no critique of the social structure as such, uh, calling for a new order. <clears throat> for example, the powerless rising up to challenge those in authority. You don't find that here. Quite the contrary, in Isaiah, if not in all the prophets, the criticism comes from within the structures of power, from, an, from a member of that uh, very ruling class. It is not the structures of power or the political system, but the exercise of power, uh, leaders uh, who mislead, and especially the abuse of political power for economic oppression that uh, undermine the structures of this society. Moreover, those who have authority bear the burden of greater responsibility for the well-being of the society. This text that we're looking at right here, and this is what, uh, what he's saying about, about this text, with the over overwhelming weight of the biblical tradition on its side, affirms 
that all structures of power and all political and religious leaders must be evaluated in the light of God's justice. And, of course, uh, justice is uh, one of the key, key elements in uh, Isaiah's message. So, so we're going to be looking at see how Isaiah describes the disintegrating of his own society in his time, as we see in these passages. Um, the next quotation I have is from uh, a set of commentaries known as the uh, International Critical Commentary. But I, I think they gave, um, <clears throat> again, this is another set of commentaries written by a number of different uh, Bible scholars that are regarded as experts in their particular uh, area of the Bible. And uh, I, I won't read the whole, uh, whole quotation here, but uh, it's a quotation that describes the situation that Isaiah was facing his, his, uh, his, his time and basically what it's saying is that due, due to the influence of trade and that uh, Israel is involved in trade trade with the foreign countries, that uh, the, the flow of wealth uh, uh, that took place in, in uh, the trading activities and the, and the presence of foreigners with wealth-producing commerce and that this kind of broke down the society of the day that was... Uh, previous to this, mainly in agriculture society and causing the farmers to leave their farms as the, the wealthy would buy up the, the farms and uh, uh, <clears throat> then um, people would have to move to the city and settle down in the city. And, and this uh, developed two classes, a very rich uh, class of people and then the very poor and we'll find Isaiah speaking quite a bit about the how the rich oppress the poor. Um, the sins of trade, it says, uh, uh, he identifies the sins of trade as covetousness, false weights, the oppression of debtors of the poor, and frequently uh, castigated. Um, <clears throat> and so... Uh, Isaiah, in common with other prophetic writers, condemns these things because they blind men to worthy and spiritual ideas. So there's another insight into uh, what the situation was like when uh, Isaiah came on the scene and, and uh, <clears throat> presented his message that he received uh, from God uh, to his people of his day, Judah and Jerusalem. <clears throat> we... <clears throat> We have the reference uh, here in several verses about all of this taking place in that day. Now remember, we looked at uh, the first part of chapter 2 as uh, a description of what was going to take place in the latter days. And uh, we talked about that, how the the Bible identifies the latter days. So when the the reference here is in that day, for example, look at verse 11 where it says... uh, uh, the Lord will, uh, will be exalted in that day. And uh, also in verse 20, you see, in that day men will throw away uh, uh, their, their idols and so forth. Um, so, and also uh, back here in verse 17, it says that the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Well, this is a phrase that appears quite often in Isaiah, that uh, in that day or in the Lord's day, and uh, we want to know. <clears throat> we would like to know what what day is he referring to, in that day. Well, <clears throat> uh, at the bottom of that first page, we have a brief description of what is uh, involved in the expression of the phrase "in that day." Uh, <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, sometimes it's referred to as the Lord's Day, that, that the Lord has a day in which he's going to act. He's going to uh, uh, perform certain things for, for the people, either in judgment or in deliverance. Uh, sometimes it's a, a day of judgment and punishment uh, on the people, and sometimes it's referring to a day of deliverance and redemption. And you just have to tell by the context what, what is being, being referred to. Uh, but here in, in these uh, particular verses we're looking at, Isaiah sees the time when all hope for forgiveness has passed. You see that phrase uh, at the end of verse uh, verse 9? So men will be brought low and people humble, but do not forgive them. Now, <clears throat> how do you understand that phrase that Isaiah is saying, do not forgive them? <clears throat> Does that sound like what... Uh, what a man of God should say about his people, do not forgive them. How would, how would you read that verse? How would you understand that verse? Well, I suggest that uh, the last paragraph on that first page that uh, there does come a time when all hope for forgiveness is past past. Do not forgive them, Isaiah says. And here's this quotation from Edward J. Young, uh, another one of those uh, commentators that we've been referring to. He says, Because of the sinful practices described in the preceding verse, the humbling judgment of God will come upon all men, and then it will be too late for forgiveness. Um, and then also another quotation from, uh, uh, from Homer Haley. Homer Haley is uh, another member of the, uh, of the Church of Christ, preacher in Church of Christ, taught at the Abilene Christian and Florida Christian College. He said in his commentary on Isaiah that the sins leading to these conditions would bring judgment upon all. Both the ordinary man of low degree and the man of high degree would be abased, brought low, humbled greatly. The situation is so bad that the prophet Christ forgive them not. For he can see no hope for a change. Uh, they have, in other words, they have reached a, a point of uh, no return. That God just cannot possibly forgive them as long as they remain in their sinful condition. Yes, Chuck? Yeah, that was kind of the uh, specific. Repentance, there's no comment about mm. repentance or change. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yes, you will. Yeah. Um, so, being humble, uh, being heard, does mm. not mean that repentance is also going to happen. Mm. Yes, it all depends on on uh, uh, how the people are going to react to the message that God is giving giving to them. If they and that uh, Isaiah, of course, all the way through here is urging the people to change their ways to heed the message that God has given to them. And then, of course, there is hope of forgiveness. But apparently this is suggesting that there may, be, may come a time when it's just beyond all hope that uh, they cannot be forgiven as long as they remain in that condition. God will not forgive them and excuse them and let them go ahead and live the way they are without any change or repentance on their part. <clears throat> well, this, this reference to in that day... Uh, uh, the idea seems to be that he's referring to 
a, uh, a day or a period of time, not just to uh, one day or one period of time, but a day that is often repeated. God has many days, and he'll act and intervene in the affairs of men on many different occasions. And whenever that happens, that is in that day when God acts, pointing toward the, the one great, of course, final judgment day at the end, end of the world when God will finally put an end to all, all the sin of the world and to bring the, his creation uh, to an end and the final judgment and so forth. And that leads on to further discussions of uh, what, is, what is it going to be like and what's going to happen at the, end, at the very end of days. The mention of that day in verse 12 has been recognized for ages as the world's judgment day. But there are to be many typical fulfillments, much more immediately, each of them in turn being a type of that eternal and cataclysmic morning when Almighty God in righteous anger will at last terminate the rebellious race of Adam in the final judgment when he will arise and cast evil out of his universe. <clears throat> this is, uh, again, from Burton Kaufman in his commentary. And then he quotes uh, with approval a statement from Gleason Archer in the Wycliffe Bible co- commentary. It says, Here the immediate reference is to the historical judgments of Israel and the Chaldean invaders. Not only Israel and Judah, but all the heathen nations of that age as well were to experience the crushing blows of disaster as each successive empire uh, rose and fell. And as we move on into Isaiah, we'll, we'll see specific references to these, uh, these nations, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and uh, how God is going to use these foreign nations to punish his people, and that they, in turn, will be punished as well. <clears throat> Uh, here, in the middle of the uh, page two, there's uh, a further quotation from Kaufman uh, <clears throat> about his understanding of that day. Throughout history, God has repeatedly judged and destroyed apostate, heathen, and degenerate cultures. And in each instance, whether stated or not, there is a foreshadowing, a type for that etermin- terminal for that terminal judgment of the great day prophesied in Genesis two seventeen. This l- lies behind the Savior that, that Jesus's prophecy of the end of the world and the destruction of Jerusalem. With one set of prophecies, the latter most certainly being a type of the former. Furthermore, there's no need to doubt that at uh, as time progresses, God will further execute His judgment upon excessively wicked and religious cultures. Now, we might pause and ask the question here, where are we in our nation today uh, in, the, uh, in, in, this, uh, in this scenario? <clears throat> are we becoming more and more excessively wicked in our culture? And will God at some time intervene and uh, uh, try to put an end to the... Uh, a de- degeneration of, of our own culture. <clears throat> Until at last, when the cup of human iniquity is full, there will fall upon wicked humanity the terminal judgment that is mentioned in Zephaniah, in which prophecy God said, I will wipe this Adam off the face of the earth. And that um, 
Now, obviously, he's referring to the final judgment day when God will bring all, all the wickedness of, of men uh, to an end. <clears throat> so notice in verse 9 here in chapter 2 where Isaiah says, It will be a day when men will be brought low and people humbled. And the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted. And they will be humbled, as mentioned in verse 12 of this chapter. And then he goes on and mentions four pairs of high things that will be brought low in verses 13 through 16. You see here the reference to uh, all the uh, cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, in verse 13. And all the oaks of Bashan, all the towering mountains, and all the high hills. Figurative language referring to the bringing down of all that is arrogant and lofty and lifted up. Something we might consider here that I suggest as a possibility is that could it be possible that we can apply... Uh, by extension, this description here of our own environmental consequences of our own day, such as deforestation as is taking place in different parts of the world, and uh, of course, strip mining, strip mining that uh, has taken place in our own country. Is this the bringing down of the high mountains and the uh, bringing down of the uh, the forests? Uh, 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 lowering the uh, big trees, the old growth stands of the old trees and so forth. Is it possible that uh, we might make this application to our own day today? Uh, well, this is what Edward J. Young has to say about this. He says, The judgment to come will be over everything. In the fall, the inanimate creation was also affected and cursed. Instead of developing the creation to the fullest that the name of God might be glorified, man has misused it by idolatry, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. He has taken of his creation, that is that man, human beings, have taken of his creation and from it has made for himself gods to which he has bowed down. Therefore, the creation itself, which has been so misused, is to feel the effect of the divine judgment, not because of its evil itself, but because it has been abused and perverted by man. The day will show that the uh, creation which man had regarded as high and lofty is in reality only something created, and that Yahweh, God alone, is to be truly exalted. So to what extent can we apply Isaiah's word here Uh, to our situation today in regard to our own environments. Uh, Are the changes in the environment that we are seeing today, is is that maybe an expression of God's displeasure of how man has used the environment to uh, uh, to man's own selfish purposes? And uh, may we be experiencing today God's judgment upon the world because the way we have misused his creation. Something to think about and something to consider, so bring that up. Um, uh, So we see see these four pairs of um, 
high things that are going to be brought low in verses 13 through 16. Uh, the cedars of Lebanon, full, uh, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan. Bashan was an area that is uh, uh, somewhat to the north and the east uh, of, uh, of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and it was noted uh, for its uh, forests uh, of oaks and so on. So uh, the, 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 the timber, the lumber from these areas were highly valued, were used in, in their uh, constructions. <clears throat> so um, these, these things that they regarded as uh, being so high and lofty are going to be brought down. All the towering mountains and all the high hills and so on. So uh, he referring to a certain element of the environment that is going to be affected uh, by uh, God's judgment upon uh, uh, these uh, activities of, of man. And he mentions that every lofty tower, every fortified wall uh, that is going to be, be brought down. You see in verse uh, 15 here, um, every lofty tower and every fortified wall, this... Uh, no doubt is referring to their military um, defenses uh, that they were trusting in, uh, and they are going to be brought down. Every trading trip, literally the, the, the words that are used here is that every ship of Tarshish, and Tarshish um, is believed to be an area to the far west, the, the outermost parts of the civilized world at that time, uh, usually associated with an area in Spain. <clears throat> and uh, uh, the ships that were built to be able to travel that distance uh, are going to be uh, 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 destroyed. Every stately vessel, or as Haley suggests, articles of art brought from far countries. Uh, this was part of the trading that was taking place uh, between these people and other peoples in the world. These four, and these four um, pairs that are mentioned here that are going to be brought down uh, may well point to a fifth pair to be brought low. And you see in verse 17, the arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then he goes on in the next verse to point out how, how the idols will totally disappear. When he says that the idols will, you, will totally disappear, they'll get rid of their idols when they finally realize that uh, their idols cannot deliver them. <clears throat> yes? Um, it seems like, uh, you know, as you've been uh, talking about here in verses 12 through 18, mm-hmm. that there's differences between what is or how things are being brought low. In the first part, you're suggesting that it's man that brings the mountains and these hills low, and then it transitions into towers are being brought down and, and vessels are being brought down but that's being done by God mm-hmm. so that God alone is exalted. I'm wondering whether the uh, mountains, the valleys the, the, the Lebanon cedars is more an illustration of uh, you know how the mountains will be laid low and that mm-hmm. the rocks will cry mm-hmm. out uh, if the people don't. You know, the bringing glory to God the humbling is something mm-hmm. that God really desires in all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yes, it is God's hand. But how does God work? How does God work today? 
Does he work uh, through the hands of men? Indirectly, it may be God who is actually doing these things, but he is using man to bring about his own purposes. Yes, Chappie, you wanted to say something? Yeah. Sure, yes. Yes, exactly, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, idol worship uh, on those. Right. right, yes. I think I think that can be included in it as well. Sure. Uh-huh. Yes. And of course this is uh, one of the main messages that Isaiah is trying to get across that uh, uh, your reliance upon idols to deliver you is going to be destroyed and that your idols will be brought low and and as it goes on to say how they're going to be cast away. <laughs> okay, anything else? Yes. Ch- uh, yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That that probably has a, a more of a reference to the final day, uh, at the final judgment when fin- finally the whole world will recognize that God is the true God. <clears throat> And that uh, he will be exalted in that day. Finally, people will come to their realization that, uh, yes, indeed, God is the one who is in control of the universe, is in control of the environment, is in control of all that is found in the environment and in creation, and that uh, he is the one who is to be exalted rather than relying upon these, these idols and so forth. Um, Isaiah seems to be using some pretty strong language here, and that brings up the the question, would you consider Isaiah's preaching what we sometimes call as hard preaching? As hard preaching. And here's a a comment again from Edward J. Young about uh, the language that that Isaiah is using. And he says, in preaching as he does here, Isaiah is going contrary to modern psychological theories which assert that it is unwise and even wrong to use fear as a motive in preaching and teaching. How different God's appraisal of preaching. The judgment, and and it is primarily the last judgment that's here in view, is set before sinful men as a terrible reality. They must turn from their sins if they would escape such judgment. This is the only motive in preaching that will prevail with sinners. Then men might begin somewhat to understand the hatred that God has for sin and to turn from their evil ways to flee to Christ for refuge. The only way, notice this last statement that makes it, I think, is very effective. The only way to run from God is to run to him. Uh, if you've been a member in Churches of Christ for a good number of years, you may recall those days when we had preaching that we today would refer to as hard preaching. Uh, any of you ever heard of uh, the, the preacher, the evangelist, uh, Jimmy Allen? You know who Jimmy Allen was? Uh, a few of you. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
few, uh, I dare say a few of us old-timers remember Jimmy Allen. Um, he was a well-known evangelist that traveled the country uh, holding, uh, holding meetings and evangelistic uh, 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 endeavors. Uh, when we were living in, in California many, many years ago, um, we had what was called the California Campaign for Christ, you know, the CCC. And they would, um, it was a statewide effort, uh, a campaign for Christ. And they would erect billboards uh, all over the state uh, advertising the California Campaign for Christ. Well, in the, in the um, northern area, the Bay Area of California, the uh, featured um, preacher in that uh, campaign was Jimmy Allen. And one of his sermons that uh, he is noted for is, uh, was entitled, What is Hell Like? And uh, uh, many people uh, regarded it as being a very effective uh, uh, evangelistic tool in trying to get people to turn from their sins. Today, we might uh, uh, have some object- objection to that type of preaching. But Isaiah here seems to be using that, that approach in approaching his people. Today, so something to, to, to consider. <clears throat> Verses 19 through 21, men will try to flee from the presence of God in that day when he rises to shake the earth. Now that expression, shake the earth, is found two times in, in, this, uh, in this passage. Uh, notice at the end of verse 21, it says, when he rises to shake the earth. Um, and that phrase, to shake the earth, is an interesting phrase uh, because, uh, <clears throat> uh, because of the language that Isaiah uses that uh, illustrates uh, his awareness and his use of poetic devices. Uh, uh, we might have, uh, in fact, a complete lesson on and collect all of these poetic devices that Isaiah uses as a lesson, or maybe we'll just notice them as they uh, appear as we move along. But here is an example of one of his poetic devices that he uses. Um, <clears throat> Shake the earth is poetic device in Hebrew. In the last two words, as Edward J. Young says, in the last two words in the in the Hebrew, la aritz la aritz, there is an interesting paranomasia. And do you know what a paranomasia is? That's a technical term uh, uh, to re- refer to a type of language that is used. Uh, and then this next quotation right below that is, here there is an untransferable, that is an untranslatable from the Hebrew into English, of a paranomasia. Now notice that the, he uses, he spells it as P-A-R-A nomasia, and just above that, uh, from the young, uh, young quotation, is P-A-R-O, paronomasia, paronomasia. I looked it up in the dictionary, and I could not find any listing under the spelling of P-R-R-A, paronomasia. I did find the listing under paronomasia as a poetic, uh, as a technical term to refer to a particular poetic device. But this, um, but this uh, quotation from Jennings says that, the, that this is an untransferable uh, paranomasia, uh, the sound of the words giving the sense they would convey. But anyone can catch it for the words la aretz ha aret, 
The rolling of the R's give in their sound the idea of a trembling of terror. <clears throat> and he translates these words in the English as quiver and fear. Quiver and fear. That kind of kind of relates the idea of the meaning that is being presented here. Humans will quiver with fear from dread of the Lord because they will be caught red-handed with the goods in their hands. And uh, notice that Isaiah goes on to say that they try to get rid of their idols, throwing their idols to the rodents and the bats. Today we might use the expression, uh, they're trying to get rid of the evidence by flushing them down the toilet. You know how that, that term expression is sometimes used when people are caught with, with the goods uh, that they shouldn't have, and so they try to get rid of the evidence. But anyway... This idea, this poetic device of using words that kind of reflect the idea that is being, being presented. Years ago, I took a course in poetry, and the textbook that we used in that course was called Sound and Sense. The idea is that in good poetry, poets will use words that resemble the sense that those words are trying to convey. And one of the examples that is used of this is uh, a, an example that has stuck with me all these years uh, from the noted American poet Robert Frost. Now, I'm sure mo- most everyone has heard of, of Robert Frost, the famous American poet. He wrote just a simple uh, a two-line poem that's called The Span of Life. Just two lines. The old dog barks backward without getting up. I can remember when he was a pup. And that's it. That's the whole poem, just those two lines. Now, why is it regarded as good poetry? Well, because of the sound of the words is reflecting the sense. Notice how the long vowels in that first line kind of reflects the idea of the old dog lying backwards uh, on, on the old dog barks backward without getting up. And then the next line says, I can remember when he was a pup. Can't you see the pup just hopping and jumping around in, in, in those words? So that's the idea of sound and sense. And when I think of sound and sense, there's one hymn that always comes to mind uh, that we're, we're familiar with. Um, the song, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, in the very last stanza, uh, the fourth stanza, you have a repetition of a sound that reminds us of peace and quiet, and that is the S sound, the sibilance. And I'm sure you've seen cartoons where they try to indicate someone is sleeping by writing Z's over his head. Well, they use the word Z because it, uh, that sibilant kind of reflects the idea of someone snoring or sleeping or in peace. Well, notice how John Whittier, the author of this hymn, uses the S sound, those sibilants, to try to reflect the idea of calmness and smoothness and sleeping, where he says, Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our striving cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. So I see this sound, the Z, the S sound, so forth, reflects the idea of peace and calmness and quietness. 
So that's, that's an example of how sound and sense work in uh, trying to uh, represent the idea that is being said by the words, by the sound of the words themselves. And here we have an example, example of that here. And, uh, and we may come across that, that idea several times in the course of our study. Uh, okay, yes, yes, uh, Anna. Now, in the original Hebrew, that's where that comes from. Yeah, and I know, but yeah. Yeah, no, it wouldn't it wouldn't sound the same? No, uh, I, that's why I suggested the uh, translation of a quiver. Uh, kind of has that R sound. That is, uh, they will shiver and quiver, or however it was. So there are attempts by some translators to try to bring out the idea of the repetition of the sound to reflect the the idea that is being presented there. And we'll see a good example of that uh, in, in just a few more chapters of how uh, how an attempt is made to try to reproduce the sound of the original Hebrew words or the feeling of the original Hebrew into an English translation. So when they're translating, they recognize this is what is going on, so they're trying to do So they try to, try to re, uh, reproduce it in, uh, in English, but as, as this guy says, it's, uh, it's untranslatable, untransferable from one language into the... If you study a foreign language, any, any kind of foreign language, you know how difficult it is to... to reproduce into English what is really being presented in the original that you're translating from. And that is quite often in uh, one of the problems that translators have in translating the Bible is uh, how do you translate the intent and the feeling and the mood of the original language into an uh, English uh, type of translation? And that's why we have commentaries, so they can comment upon the meaning and the significance of, of these original words. Um, quiver with fear is, is one suggestion how to translate the, this phrase here. Um, the admonition in verse 22 then is that uh, we should, uh, men should stop trusting in man and in handmade human inventions... Uh, uh, bottom page 3, this quotation from Young again. The coming of God will reveal to men how foolish was trust in those things which human hands have made. The Lord arises that he may cause the earth to tremble. And those who until this time have placed their confidence in the work of human hands, now in their utter disgust and anger uh, at their folly, cast away their valuable idols valuable idols they are not they are for mice and bats and the dark and unattractive places where mice and bats live and that's what isaiah is describing here uh, where he says that uh, uh, that uh, in that day men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they have made to worship they will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. 
Okay, some uh, uh, final comments uh, as we, we close here. Um, he goes on in, into chapter 3 uh, to list uh, 12 specific things which the people depended upon, which the Lord will take away in that day, verses 1 through 3. And you read down through here where he mentions that he'll... <clears throat> Take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. Supply and support. And then goes on to mention the sort of things that are going to be taken away. Supplies of food, supplies of water. Uh, the hero uh, and warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and the elder, and the captain of 50 and men of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will, will govern them. People oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable. You see, this description of the, of the disintegration of his society is taking place uh, among, among his own people. Um, this reference to, uh, <clears throat> to uh, make boys their officials... Um, <clears throat> Leaders uh, who, uh, uh, who act childishly, whose actions are childish. In fact, I, I heard this very word used by one of our prominent uh, politicians just a few days ago when he's talking about certain other uh, politicians being childish in their activities. Uh, <clears throat> and in fact, when I had the news on this morning listening to, uh, to a report in which... Uh, a reporter saying that uh, uh, some of the activities that are taking place in our society today are, are throwing temper tantrums. You know, like children who throw temper tantrums. The comparison of their childish behavior here. Well, this is what Isaiah is referring to here when the leaders are acting like children. And only children will, <coughs> will be uh, become their mere children will govern them. They, they'll govern in such a way that could be regarded as being childish in the way they govern. Well, uh, fi- a few final co- comments. Through the rest of that chapter, uh, <clears throat> you'll um, notice that the references to <clears throat> that uh, because of the situation, no one's going to want to become a leader. You know, you want me to be your leader? No, I don't want to. I don't want to take, take on this responsibility. No, don't, don't ask me to be your leader uh, because of the situation. <clears throat> and uh, I find this uh, reference here uh, in, um, <clears throat> in verses 8 and 9 interesting how that the, uh, it says that the look on their faces testify against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. That word parade, you know, that reminds me of some of the activities that take place in our modern society. A certain sinful uh, element of our society like to march down in parades in city streets, parading their uh, sinful activities. Um, And uh, uh, the look on their faces testify against them, you know, People become so involved in sin that you can begin to see the, see it expressed in the very expressions in their very face that uh, they are are like this. Um, <clears throat> verses eleven through twelve here 
Uh, here is a comment uh, on those verses made by Homer Haley in his commentary. He says, A prime principle running throughout the Bible is now announced. As a man sows, so shall he reap. The righteous will eat or partake of the fruits of their righteousness, but woe unto the wicked. As he has done, so shall it be done unto him. To reap the blessings of righteousness, man must act righteously. If he prefers to live wickedly, he must be prepared to bear the consequences. It is ever that simple. And then he goes on in the next verse talking about how the rich oppress the poor. Uh, remember, uh, you can see down, down here that uh, 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 verse 15 what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding, grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord Almighty. Uh, and um, uh, the last uh, couple of phrases in verse 14 says, It is you have ruined my vineyard. Now that idea, the vineyard is going to come up, uh, in fact, very next, next, next Sunday. We'll be looking at that in the next chapter uh, where he talked about the branch of the Lord, and then in chapter 5, the song of the vineyard. So we'll consider that uh, next week. But our, our time is gone for this morning, so we're going to have to close and get ready for our, our morning, morning worship. Um, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful that we've had this uh, time to spend in looking at your word, and we pray that you'll Help us to assimilate the uh, thoughts and the truths that are contained in your word, not the words that we have said on our own, in, a, in our own efforts, but as the words themselves are presented to us in your holy word. May we accept them as your word, and may we apply them to our lives as we live from day to day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.